Today's Bible reading is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 to 26. And in the Bibles provided by the church, it's on page 826. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, or orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Peter. If you haven't um, met me before, if you're a visitor, and I'm not one of the ministers here, so there you go. <laughs> Special welcome also to um, people who um, are visiting here this morning because of the special events that we've already uh, had the privilege to share. It's great. We're continuing our series that we've been doing over the past few weeks on Galatians this morning and today on the passage that was just read for us, Galatians 5, 16 to 26, um, on the topic that in your Bibles, if you've got one of the church Bibles, uh, heads up the passage, Life by the Spirit, or as I've called it, if... Um, Oh, look at that. I didn't have that background when I put it in. <laughs> uh, living by the Spirit. Now, I think just about every parent who loves their children can uh, actually relate to that stage in life um, when they sort of need to release the reins. Your son or your daughter is growing up and it's time to be free from parental supervision and the rules that go with it and allow them to determine their own way forward, their own way of life, where their own direction will go. Now for those children, Sarah and Melody, de dedicated uh, here today, that's still a way off and uh, their parents' task, as we've seen, is, um, is now to bring them up in a loving Christian way and set them a good model and for us to support them as uh, they do that. And there might be some of the teenagers here, of course, who are probably thinking it's time already to release the reins and, uh, and let them uh, do what they want. But when this time comes, parents often experience a certain level of anxiety. Their children may be free now to determine their own lives, but how will they use that freedom? Will they be wise in their choices? 
Or will they succumb to the many alluring temptations often set before them in the media or on the internet when it comes to running their own lives? And I'm sure a number of people here might sadly know of some young people uh, they've known for whom that has actually happened. Well, if you can relate in some way uh, to that sort of situation, you'll have grasped grasped something um, of what is at stake in our passage today. You see, so far in Galatians, we've seen how the Apostle Paul has been restating what we call the doctrine of justification by faith. That is the doctrine that no one, um, or that one, can only come into relationship with God by putting one's faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone and the forgiveness that we have through his death on the cross. We can't possibly earn God's favour. It's simply a gift, a gift of God's grace when we put our trust in Jesus. You see, we're free. Free from what? Well, free from the old way of relating to God. The system that was set in place in the Old Testament law. Now, there was nothing wrong with the law in itself, what it said. It taught us about the character of God. But it could not solve the problem, the human problem inside every human being. What this passage calls the sinful nature, or more literally, um, the word is the flesh. And so what uh, the law did, though it was good, it only highlighted in the end that we were not so good. And therefore acted like a prison, an imprisoned people, under a continual burden of guilt and a system of sacrifice to atone for sin. All the law did was to be in some ways like a parent a guardian to provide a framework to relate to God until Christ came to win our freedom. So in Galatians 3.23, a bit earlier, if I can get this thing to work, there it, no, not that fast. Um, Paul says, before this faith came, we were held like, held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The situation, as Stephen um, told us last week, was a bit like a butterfly. You know, it begins life and grows in a cocoon, held in for time. Just like the law held God's people before Jesus came. But then the cocoon is broken and this beautiful butterfly comes out and is free to fly. This is exactly what Christ has done for every Christian believer. Set us free. Set us free from the Lord to fly. But just as a parent may wonder how their son or daughter will use their freedom, the same question arises for the Christian. So Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, just before our passage it is for freedom that Christ has set us free stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened 
by a yoke of slavery. And then just before our passage, immediately before, in verses 13 to 15, he says, You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. How then are we to use our newfound freedom? Well, we are to live by the Spirit. Paul says in verse 16. No, I forgot to put verse 16 in. He says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And Paul goes on now in our passage to actually explain a little more what this means. And if you have one of the leaflets, you can see it, um, the outline in, uh, in the leaflet on the left-hand side as to where we're going. So first, what he does is review what I call the particularly unique issue, particularly unique issue for every Christian believer. It is the conflict between flesh and spirit. Verse 17 reads, For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not know what you want. So that you do not do what you want, sorry. Now, sinful nature here is literally just the word flesh. And it's interesting to note in the most recent edition of the NIV, um, just being out, the new international version that is, just been out a few years, that they've gone back to that translation from the one you have in your Bibles of sinful nature. And I think it's, it's better really and more sharply um, shows the contrast with spirit. The flesh, you see in Paul's letters, many times, most times, but not always, represents human nature in rebellion to God. Yeah, maybe direct rebellion such as the atheist who says there is no God. Or it might be the token rebellion of the agnostic, whose excuse is, well, I just don't know. Or the religious person who thinks he or she can obey God through their religious system. Or it can be just like a lot of Aussies today, I suspect, who just plain ignore God. But as verse 17 makes clear, the flesh, or the sinful nature, and the spirit are opposed to each other. For the flesh is contrary to the spirit. And here, of course, Paul is speaking about the Holy Spirit. And its desires are diametrically opposed to the spirit of God. And this creates a unique problem only for the Christian. Because only the Christian who knows what Paul's talking about. Because you see, only those who belong to Christ receive God's Spirit. Only those who belong to Christ have God's Spirit. No one else. The gift of the Holy Spirit is God's promise to everyone who repents of their sin and rebellion against God and puts their faith and trust in Jesus. Way back when the church was formed and the Holy Spirit was actually given, the Apostle Peter said to people who were gathered then, repent and be baptised 
every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But although every believer now lives uh, with the presence of God's Spirit, the influence of the flesh has not been completely silenced and still hangs around. And so we know only too well the reality of that conflict and the contrary desires between flesh and spirit, creating a conflict for the believer of mind and will. On the one hand, we have the, wonderfully, the wonderful forgiveness given by God and that we've been brought back in relationship with him, accepted just as we are through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And God has changed us so that now our desire is actually to do the will of God. Yet on the other hand, there is still the tug of the flesh, our old sinful nature, tugging away at us and those things that are contrary to the spirit, tugging away at us to continue to act selfishly, to gossip about one another, to quarrel, divide, and to use our sexuality to indulge our own pleasure. And the list could go on. We'll come to some of those in a moment because Paul lists them in verse 19. Now, if I can try and illustrate what I'm talking about here in two circles. The first circle is the world of the flesh to which all humanity belongs from birth. We're all born with a sinful nature and all moving away from God from the day we're born. The other is the world of the spirit, the world of God's spirit. And it's only those who belong to Christ who are actually part of that. But notice there's an overlap. Sin's influence has not entirely gone away. For the Christian, it is this overlap which creates that conflict between mind and will. Wanting to serve God, finding that so hard to do. Often wanting to do something we know is contrary to God, etc. But we just need to make one further adjustment here, which I hope you can see. <laughs> All right. Um, and that is, that's represented by changing... Um, part of that overlap to a dotted line. Um, it represents the truth of what Paul says in verse 18, that the power or that the spirit frees us from the dominion of the law. He says, but if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Um, it seems odd and unrelated at first, but it goes back to what was said earlier. The law in the end did not solve the human problem. It merely showed up our human nature as flesh, as sinful nature locked up God's people to a continual system of guilt and sacrifice specified in the Old Testament law. But every Christian believer now possesses God's spirit and is freed from the law's dominion. They are forgiven forever. Forgiven forever. Wow, that's an incredible thing to be forgiven 
forever. And you see, that's what's shown by the dotted line there. The dotted line is that part, of course, that's attached to the world of the flesh. The flesh may still have influence, but we now belong to the realm of the spirit. We don't belong to the realm of the flesh anymore, only to the world of the spirit. And one day when Jesus returns, we will throw off the influence of the flesh entirely and truly live according to the freedom we have in Christ with him for eternity. How wonderful is that? Well, Paul goes on briefly then to outline what a community of the flesh flesh looks like to that of the spirit. And with that, we're able to move a little more quickly through the outline. First, Paul outlines the acts of the flesh. In verses 19 to 21, oh, I missed that one. 19 to 21, he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, although it's a fairly long list, it's immediately obvious there's not a complete list from the last three words there, where he says, and the like. So he's being selective here. Now, obviously, we don't have time to go through each one this morning. I'm sure you're glad of that in one way or another. Um, So just let me point out uh, a couple of things. We could summarise the whole list overall, as I have done in the outline, as um, acts of self-indulgence, acts that are self-indulgent and antisocial. You see, the list begins and ends with the same sort of thing, roughly acts of self-indulgence, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery. Debauchery, of course, is one way of saying where you're completely given over in all you do to your own pleasure and self-indulgence. And then at the other end, you've got drunkenness and orgies, which are sort of similar. But the longest part, you see, of this list is the antisocial part, both in attitude to God, idolatry and witchcraft, but particularly towards other people, towards each other, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. And a number of writers have suggested that Paul particularly casts an emphasis here in this list because of the backbiting and jealousy and division that was going on in the Galatian congregation. I think there's some merit in this suggestion since if you were to scan chapter 5, you would find he talks about this behaviour in verse 15 and in verse 20 and in verse 25. It's clearly on the agenda. Now, Paul speaks here about the human community as a whole. It's not that everyone has all these things or does all these things uh, that are the works of the flesh. And I'm sure we're all thankful for that. But friends, none of us, if we are honest, can escape such a list. None of us can. Even more so when we take our thoughts into account, as Jesus did, many times in his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Paul makes it crystal clear 
that living like this, he says in verse 21, means exclusion from the kingdom of God. He says, I warn you that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice that Paul um, is talking about those who live like this. He's not talking about here particular acts or sins in themselves because we still do sin. We still do these things to each other. He's talking about a life typified by this sort of behaviour. And every human being, friends, every human being who does not belong to Christ in God's eyes does live like this. Because at the very least, they live a life in constant idolatry by either denying, rejecting or just plain ignoring God and worshipping something else in its place. In fact, I think that all the other things on this list, all those things that are a list of which we see such a great abundance in our world today, are simply the outcome of idolatry in the end. One only has to look at the last half century in our own country. The further people reject and jettison this country's Christian heritage, the more self-indulgent and divided we have become. Don't expect it to improve anytime soon. Well, Paul then goes to contrast these acts of the spirit with, um, sorry, the acts of the flesh with the fruit of the spirit. And in verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the spirit, as we've heard this morning, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Again, rather than go through each one as we could, I've summarised them in the outline as qualities of service and unity produced by the Spirit. The acts of the flesh, you see, are self-centred. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is other person-centred. Notice here also that you have the plural, acts of the flesh, but you have the singular, fruit of the Spirit most likely indicating that these qualities ought to be taken as a whole. As what living by the Spirit or what the Spirit works in every Christian to one extent or another, rather than just individual qualities. We are meant to demonstrate all these qualities. This is further indicated by the fact that the list begins with love, which Paul's already stated in verse 14, sums up the whole law and hence probably should be seen as issuing in all the rest. Again, I don't think this is a complete list either, as the other one wasn't. The last five, for instance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, again, all have to do with the social aspect, with social cohesion and unity as the antidote that what was going on in the Galatian church. In verse 23... Paul says, against such things there is no law. In other words, to put it bluntly and somewhat provocatively, the law in this case is totally irrelevant. Totally irrelevant. If you have God's spirit 
and you are producing his fruit, there is no need for the law. The coming of the Spirit has brought about a completely different reality. This new reality is stated in verse 24 when Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. The passions and desires of our flesh have been crucified. To go back once again to the circles and the dotted line, Paul is saying that we're in the circle of the spirit. We used to be in the circle of the flesh. But through faith in Jesus, we've been transferred. Transferred to the world of the spirit. Flesh is still hanging around, trying to disturb us. But the truth is, it's being crucified in Christ. It's no longer in control. The spirit is. And so there's no need to feel helpless and defeated about our sin. Even those we find hard to get rid of. Because Christ has set us free from slavery to the law. As one writer puts it, while sin remains, it need not reign. While sin remains, it need not reign. And so Paul then sums it up in verse 25. We live by the Spirit, but our job now is the keeping is keeping in step with the Spirit. But what does that mean? You may, you may have already been asking that question as I've been going along. And I've summarised it in this way in the outline. Keeping step in the Spirit means producing outwardly the life of Christ that has taken root inwardly. Producing outwardly the life of Christ that has taken root inwardly. You see, the Spirit is the root. It's changed the foundation of our life. But keeping in step with the Spirit is the fruit. Spirit's the root. Keeping in step is demonstrating the fruit. Yes, we still read the Bible. Yes, we pray. Yes, we still seek to live according to God's instruction. But now we do so in a completely different framework. We do everything in the light of Christ, to whom we belong, and in the power of the Spirit that he has given us. Many writers have pointed out how uh, many of the, how many of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit listed here are actually attributed in the New Testament to the life and character of Christ himself. And the imitation of Christ, of course, is a constant running theme through the Apostles' instruction. In the case of Galatians, where Paul, in our passage, finishes today, Paul, hmm, Paul says... Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Keeping in step with the Spirit will create a community of God's people where there is no conceit, no division, no rivalry. But this quality of life is written in Scripture, it seems to me, because it also applies so very well to us today. This week I was in uh, Sydney at... uh, 
a conference attending a series of lectures. Um, and uh, in, during that series, um, the speaker was talking about the unity of God's people and the public demonstration of that reality for all to see. He used the term, which I thought was an interesting one. He said he thought that the church was the embassy of the kingdom of God. The local church was the embassy of the kingdom of God. Now, if you've ever travelled anywhere, you know what the embassy is. You know, we have all different embassies from different countries. An embassy represents that country to the people. So he was saying, you see, that the church, the local church, represents God to the people around who come in our doors, who we find in that sort of way. It's a completely different community, or it ought to be. In a world of strife, people should come into our midst and see and feel a joy, a peace, a love that I don't see elsewhere. Not a perfection, but something really radically different from what they find anywhere else out there because they won't find it. Well, let me conclude. I could have begun, and I thought of beginning at one stage and then gave it up today by asking you the question, this question. What does it mean to live a Christian life? What does it mean to live a Christian life? What would you have said? Think about it for a moment. If I'd started with that question, what would it mean a Christian life? I think for many of us, it would have involved something, had something to do with obeying God's law. We would have said obeying God, living by the Ten Commandments, obeying the Golden Rule. We might have had, added reading the Bible, praying daily, going to church, etc. And you know what? I think much of the world around us thinks this is what Christianity is all about. Obeying a different set of rules. But that could not be farther from the truth. And if we understand it like that, we've seriously misunderstood what the Christian life is about. Because if I asked Paul that answer, what would he say, given this passage? Simple. Christian life is about living by the Spirit. Living in the freedom of the Spirit. A freedom that does not indulge the sinful nature, the flesh that's opposed to God, but one that seeks to exhibit the Spirit-filled life of Christ. Does that mean we forget about the law? Not at all. Law reveals God's character and goodness, and with the rest of the Bible is worth reading and meditating on continually. But we no longer live under the law, and we no longer live by it. We live by the Spirit, and we are empowered each day to produce its fruit and keep in step, demonstrating outwardly the wonderful reality that God has brought about in each one inwardly. May it be so here, friends, at T&E and among all God's churches, 
who confess the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today uh, for the wonder it is that you have brought about through the Lord Jesus Christ. The freedom we have to live by the Spirit, to be forgiven forever, to be changed on the inside. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you may strengthen us each day through your Spirit, not to indulge uh, the temptations and struggles of the flesh that still hang around, but to help us know that we are truly born of the Spirit and that while sin does hang around, it does not need to reign in our lives. So strengthen us, we pray, to be individually, but also as a community, a community that demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit so that people might truly know uh, that when they come into our midst, uh, they come into the embassy of the kingdom of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.